You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So this is a pretty remarkable time that we are living in. I started this show in October 2020, just about a year and a half ago. And when I started, there were many women who were still afraid to take menopausal hormone therapy because of the supposed health risks. So I had on Drs. Avram Blooming and Carol Tavares, who had written the book Estrogen Matters, and their work pretty much paved the way for putting the breast cancer scare to rest. Now, not even two years later, I am flooded with messages from women who are afraid not to take hormone therapy because there are doctors who are saying that you can't age well without it. There is a narrative emerging that menopause should be rebranded as female hormone deficiency, that our future is bleak if we remain hormone deficient post-menopause, which reminds me a whole lot of what doctors were saying in the 1960s when Dr. Robert Wilson wrote the book Feminine Forever and literally called menopause an estrogen deficiency disease and said that estrogen replacement therapy was the only way to prevent an otherwise inevitable, and I quote, living decay. And I'm like, can we tap the brakes just a moment here and keep the pendulum from swinging so hard that we all get whiplash? So I called a friend of feisty menopause, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, who is our only repeat and now three-peat guest. Carla is a double board certified reproductive endocrinologist and obstetrician gynecologist who specializes in infertility and menopausal medicine. She is also a member of CrossFit Health, which is to say she lives and breathes hormones and health. Our goal here is not to tell you, yes, you should absolutely take hormones or no, you absolutely shouldn't. Our goal is to bring it all down to brass tacks. Because this is really complex. There is no one standard form of menopausal hormone therapy. And the effects that you get depend on how old you are, your unique physiology, what hormones you're taking, what type of hormones you're taking, and what form you're taking them in. And it won't surprise you to hear that research is still trying to catch up on all of this. We start by addressing whether menopause is a deficiency and why Carla is pretty adamant that it's not. And for the record, I'm in that camp too. And then we dive into menopause hormone therapy and performance. There have been a lot of women in our group asking if all the training and nutrition advice that we give still applies to them because they're on hormone therapy and they're replacing their hormones. And one big takeaway here is that hormone therapy does not replace your hormones it does not bring you back to your premenopausal state. The research is pretty inconclusive as to how hormone therapy affects body composition and muscle and fat. And you'll hear all about that in the show. And I'll also put a link to a blog that Carla wrote on that topic in the show notes for you too. We talk about what hormone therapy is really good for, namely symptoms. It's very good for treating hot flashes and night sweats. Vaginal estrogen is great for vaginal health. Hormone therapy can be very helpful for the musculoskeletal pain that can arise during menopause in some women. We hear from many members who find that hormone therapy reduces their anxiety, sometimes by a lot. Though I have to say I've heard from some women who have had worsening moods to a pretty extreme degree, especially with progesterone. So it's always good to consider all the angles there. When it comes to health, osteoporosis, absolutely. Hormone therapy is FDA approved for the prevention of osteoporosis. Where research is ongoing is heart disease and brain health. As Carla says in the interview, there's really good evidence that hormone therapy can be cardioprotective. But again, if and only if it started early in the transition in that 10-year window. It may also depend on what kind of hormone therapy you're taking. I'll include the most recent studies in the show notes, But I want to summarize all of this in the introduction here to be very clear. 
In the area of heart health, there are two studies that I pulled from 2020 and 2021. The study from 2021 says, and I'll just quote the conclusion. Although hormone therapy continues to have an important role in menopause management, it is not recommended for primary or secondary cardiovascular disease prevention. Different formulations, doses, and routes of delivery of hormone therapy have different effects on cardiometabolic markers and risks of clinical cardiovascular disease events. However, long-term trials evaluating clinical outcomes with transdermal and other alternate hormone therapies are limited. The other study from 2020 says something similar. It says, in women aged less than 60 years and or within 10 years of menopause with no evidence of cardiovascular disease, the initiation of hormone therapy could be expected to reduce the incidence of coronary heart disease and all-cause mortality. The effect of hormone therapy on coronary heart disease may differ depending on the use of progesterone and the timing of initiation. Currently, it is not recommended to initiate menopause hormone therapy solely for primary or secondary prevention of coronary heart disease. So there you have it. That's the latest research on that topic. Seems protective, kind of depends. The nice thing about heart disease, though, is it is something that is very trackable. You can go to your doctor and you can go over your family history. You can get your blood pressure checked. You can get your blood work done. There are various specific cardiovascular disease risk screenings and assessment. And then you can sit down with your doctor and see where hormone therapy fits into that picture for you. The other one that's a little murkier is brain health. The research right now is mostly observational. So there are associations, but association is not causation. There are studies that link hormone therapy to a decreased risk for Alzheimer's disease. But then there's also a study that just came out last year in BMJ that found a slightly increased risk for longtime users of estrogen and progestin therapies. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And I'd encourage everyone to go back and listen to the episode we did with Dr. Sarah McKay on brain health and menopause, because she wrote a book on it, had a lot to say. And I'd encourage everyone to check out Dr. Lisa Moscone's work here. She's doing advanced studies actually using brain scans. So that's 100% something to watch. I'm taking my time to lay all this out in the intro very clearly, because I hate to see women feeling like they must take hormones or they're doomed. And on the flip side, I hate to see them afraid to take them if they need and want them. We have heard from women on this show who are hitting PRs and living happy, healthy, vibrant lives without hormones. And we've also heard plenty of women on this show whose lives were turned around for the better once they started taking menopausal hormone therapy. I know people are probably wondering and are going to ask. So I'll just say for me personally, I started using vaginal estrogen as well as Bonafide's Reverie, which is not a prescription product because sometimes I race my bike for more than 10 hours at a time and I need all the help I can get. And the vaginal irritation was something that was just coming up for me. I have never pursued systemic hormones because, well, I feel good. I sleep great. My risk factors are low. My bone health is great. And I was able to manage anxiety with ashwagandha and CBD. So I just wasn't feeling like I wanted to go through the trial and error of hormone therapy. But that's just me. We each need to assess our personal situation and find a doctor who will work with us for our best outcomes. Okay, before we get to the interview, you can find us as always at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can join our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group and join our conversations. If you like the show, please subscribe and share. It helps others to find us. And finally, Dr. Stacy Sims and I have our next book coming out next month. It's Next Level, your guide to kicking ass, feeling great, and crushing goals through menopause and beyond. And we dive into the science on all of this. You can pre-order it right now at feistymenopause.com. Just click the tab for Next Level Book. And by pre-ordering it through our site, you get four free bonuses, including an adaptogen cheat sheet, a hormone cheat sheet, a guide to talking to your doctor or trainer about menopause, and a video presentation by Dr. Stacey Sims. While you're on the site, 
check out our hit replay podcast guide subscription service. And I'd like to thank everyone who has subscribed so far. I appreciate you. Okay, truly enough of me. Let's hear from our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Well, hello, my friend, Carla DiGirolamo. I'm so good at saying your name now. Like, 
we had a blooper reel with me just being like all the F-bombs. And I honestly am like, I don't know if I can say this name. I don't know what I'm going to do. And now it just rolls off my tongue because you are a frequent guest and a friend of the Feist, all things feisty. So thank you for being here again. I'm very excited about this one. It's my pleasure. I love being here. I am. I am so excited about the show because I think I think what we're doing, the, the subject we're talking about today is so, so important because we've gone from, you know, hormone replacement therapy, which now we've changed that name and we'll get into that, is will it kill you and nobody should take it to way over to here, like hormone replacement therapy is for everyone because without it, you're deficient. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, wow, there's a lot of um, hard selling of hormones now as they go along with sort of the, the fear of it. And I, I want to just take us on this journey of explaining what it is and what it actually can and can't do and why. Like, because I think when you hear hormone replacement therapy, as it's been called, it's natural to make that jump. If I know my hormones are dwindling, my estrogen is flatlining. If I just put it back in, then I've replaced it and I should be premenopausal. Right. But I'm not like, so what, like, what is the deal? Does MHT menopausal hormone therapy bring you to premenopausal hormone levels or close to? So let's talk about what MHT is. So hormone therapy has been defined as so many things. Okay. And so, yeah. So I figure we'll define it. Mm -hmm. as best we can. And then we can talk about what it does and what it doesn't do. Is that cool? Perfect. All right. So MHD stands for menopausal hormone therapy. And interestingly, I went on to the North American Menopause Society website, the NAMS website, because honestly, this term was kind of new to me. MHD. Well, what is that? Okay. I'm an endocrinologist. I should know what this is. So I went to NAMS and I'm like, what am I missing? And if you search the NAMS website for MHT, there's nothing there. (laughs) Okay. So then I said, well, okay, well, this is the website. And so then I went into the clinical practice handbook. That is the publication that they put out for any practitioner who's going to take the certification exam to be a menopausal practitioner. Okay. Nowhere in that manual do they mention the term MHT. Interesting. Yeah. So my guess is that it is a term that has arisen in the marketplace defined by somebody as, as something that someone, you know, they, they had a definition for it because you, I know you had asked me one time in an email, well, does it include testosterone? Does it not? And I'm like, well, I got to look that up. I got to figure this out. So it's kind of like bioidentical hormones, right? It kind of took on a definition of its own once it got out into the marketplace. But if we look at the literal definition of menopausal hormone therapy, what it means literally is any hormone therapy that we use to treat menopausal symptoms. Okay. That's how I would define it. And it would be the same definition as HRT, right? I mean, those we're not, those are not separate things. Correct. Correct. Okay. And it, so HRT has then been replaced with HT, hormone therapy. therapy. Yeah. And the reason is because we're not replacing something that's gone because at this time of our life, this is where our hormones naturally are. So we're not replacing anything because this is, this is where they are. And so they took out the R in HRT because we're not broken. This isn't a deficiency. This is the physiological environment of a peri or a menopausal woman. So HT is what they refer to in the North American Menopause Society and some of the um, more peer-reviewed publications as hormone therapy. So I think MHT is really just another way of saying, saying any hormones that we use to treat peri and menopausal symptoms, that could include estrogen, that could include progesterone, it could include testosterone, because we do use testosterone to treat these, these symptoms. So that's how I would define it for the sake of what we're talking about today. There are other things that can make it confusing because there are other 
hormonal-like substances that are used, um, like DHEA, that's a hormone. Mm -hmm. um, technically, it's used to treat menopausal symptoms, so that could be counted. And then there's selective estrogen receptor modulators and other things that they use to treat bones. And that's not really thought of as HRT because it's not like um, a steroid hormone, so to speak. So for today, we'll just define it as any hormones that we use to treat menopausal symptoms. So when we fair? talk, it does. I just want to make one clarification because when we talked about testosterone, we did mention that it's not, uh, there's no FDA product for women. So like usually when, if I were to go for hormone therapy, I would expect estrogen and probably progesterone, but I wouldn't necessarily expect testosterone. Is that fair to say? It, it's, it's true that it's not FDA approved, but physicians all the time use products that are FDA approved for something else off label. We do that all the time because honestly, to get a product FDA approved for something is very onerous and time consuming and resource consuming. So I can give you examples in the fertility world, half the stuff we use is off label, but it's got so much data behind it. Nobody really feels like going through the, the arduous FDA process to get it officially approved. So I don't think a hormone therapy needs to be FDA approved to be considered a viable therapy right. because we use hormones that are FDA approved for other things for other indications. Um, so I would include testosterone in that because even if it's not FDA approved for this use, because there is data behind it, there is safety data behind it. And it's, uh, it is used in the mainstream, um, by people who are familiar and comfortable with it, uh, to treat menopausal symptoms. Okay. So given all that, um, if I am on any forms of this, does it put me back to my premenopausal state? It does not. And that's okay. I know people are saying, well, what do you mean? It's not okay. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this way. I want to go back to the way it was before. Okay. So, you know, we have to, we think of our bodies as we age, you know, our ovaries aren't the only things that age, other things age too. As athletes, we come to accept that, okay, my fastest run time at 50 is probably not going to be what my fastest runtime was at 35 or 30. And that's what we expect. Okay. Hormones is the same thing. You know, we can't naturally have babies at 55 where we could at 30. It's heartbreaking for many people who try and try and try and can't, but that's just, it's like gravity, you know, it's, it's, it's like a law of physics. This is what happened. The body, the body ages and changes happen. And no matter what we do, we, we can't turn the clock back. And just like it's true for our fastest run times and our peak athletic performance, it's just not going to be the same as it was when we were in our thirties and our reproductive system is no different. So to market hormones in such a way that tells people, well, we're going to restore the fountain of youth and you're going to be just like the way you were before is very misleading. And I think part of the reason why, there's many reasons why we can't recreate that environment, but there's two big ones that maybe we'll talk about today. One is that a key piece of the equation to why hormones work is actually left out of the conversation, and that is the hormone receptor. So if we think of hormones as the language that tissues and cells and organs use to talk to each other, well, there needs to be an ear to listen, right? right. So we talk all about the language and the voice with hormones and hormone levels. No one's talking about the ears that are listening. And so receptors are little proteins on the surface of cells that hear that signal, that estrogen, and what they do is they translate the message to the muscle or whatever tissue you're talking about and execute, you know, whatever, whatever that particular tissue does in response to the estrogen signal. Now, what happens with testosterone receptors, estrogen receptors, is that as we age and as menopause happens, the receptors are not expressed at the same levels as they were before. You don't have as many estrogen receptors on the tissues as you used to have. Mm -hmm. So it's not hearing the signal 
in the same way as it used to. So you can bring those hormone levels in the blood back to your premenopausal levels. But if the antennae or if the ears aren't there to listen, then you're not going to get the same response. So what happens over time is our tissues change their responsiveness to the hormones so that those same hormone levels are not going to act on the tissue the same way that they did when you were 25, 30 years old. So an example of this is testosterone, okay? So we all are thinking about testosterone because we wanna increase our muscle mass, we wanna change our body composition. That's, that's one application. It does a million other things too, but let's focus on that one. Right. So what we know from the studies that are out there, and there's some pretty good ones out there, not many, but the ones that are out there are decent, where they look at early postmenopausal women or menopausal women, and they see if certain blood levels of testosterone actually help them gain strength and change their body composition. And so they did this one particular study did three different levels, a low level, a mid level, and then a higher level. The low and the mid were in the physiological range for a premenopausal woman. The third level was higher than what you would expect for a premenopausal woman. The only group that saw any difference in their muscle strength and mass was the group that had the levels beyond what the premenopausal levels were. So you might think, okay, well, if we go back to our premenopausal levels, well, that should fix everything, right? Well, it doesn't. In these studies, you have to give more testosterone to now see an effect. And the reason for that is that the ears aren't listening quite as well as they did. The receptors aren't, be, aren't there anymore in the same concentrations they were when you were younger. So now what you have to do is you have to throw a louder signal at it. Now we have to scream louder because the ears aren't hearing so well. So we're going to scream louder, louder, louder. So what happens when we scream louder? Well, the neighbors get upset. Somebody calls the police. And just like the neighbors get irritated, the rest of the body gets irritated too. Mm. So the way the body gets irritated when you throw too much testosterone screaming at the receptors is that you get hair growth, you right. get a deepening voice that's irreversible, you right. get hair falling out, you get you know bone structure changing and some of those other things because, because the receptors aren't there in the same way they used to be, and now you have to try to flood with a bigger signal, it has ripple effects on other things which cause those side effects. And so testosterone is just one example. Estrogen, it's the exact same thing. There's one receptor that's particularly important. It's called estrogen receptor alpha. There are like, I think, 12 different estrogen receptors. Uh, but estrogen receptor alpha is very, very important for metabolism of sugar and glucose intolerance, which Stacey Simmons talks a lot about with the insulin resistance, um, the way our muscles work. Uh, our mitochondria, which are our batteries that power our muscles for performance and strength, and fat tissue. So estrogen receptor alpha lives in these tissues. And when that changes, you start to see changes in our ability to manage sugar, i.e. insulin resistance. You start to see less muscle strength and less muscle mass. And you start to see changes in metabolism. The batteries of the cells aren't working so well. You know, when we're younger, our muscles are working on car batteries. When we're menopausal, we're running on triple A's because the batteries change. And the reason they change is because these receptors change. So you can throw as much hormone as you like at these receptors. It's not going to change because the responsiveness of the tissue has changed. And there's no real therapy for that. So... For, that's only just one of the reasons why we can't recreate the premenopausal response is because there are so many things that have changed that by changing just one, the signal isn't enough to give you back what you had before in the same way. So when you talk about using hormone therapy in, in any of these forms, um, is it working to help mitigate some of the symptoms because it's acting on the receptors that are still there? Like why, you know, it, we know that it's effective for some things for sure. What, right. Like, so Absolutely. why, yeah. Why is that? Because there are still receptors there. There are other receptors. Like I mentioned, there's a whole ton of estrogen receptors out there. You know, you got like 12 different ones. Um, and 
it, and those receptors are being expressed. And so we do know that, especially for hot flashes, we know that estrogen therapy really helps with that. So what it's doing, undoubtedly, it's helping to mitigate uh, symptoms. It's helping to mitigate risk of many things. We know that when we give women who are, say, surgically menopausal due to a cancer in their 30s, we know that hormone therapy is absolutely essential to help keep their cardiovascular system healthy, to help reduce their risk of cognitive decline. Um, we know that estrogen helps all that. That is a different thing than saying it recreates the premenopausal environment. Treating symptoms is one thing, and it's very effective for that. But to bring you back and turn the clock back in time to say you restore your physiology with these hormones, that is completely inaccurate. So we have to really keep in mind what do these hormones do and what do they not do? And what they do is that they're very effective at treating symptoms and potentially preventing disease. What they do not do is recreate the hormonal um, milieu of premenopause. And it was interesting, you know, there was a post like as, as you as you saw and that we started talking about it where someone said, well, I'm on MHT, so I don't need to worry about any of these issues. Yeah, you do. Uh, because right. There are people who are like, does this advice still apply to me because I'm on, on hormone therapy? Yeah. Right. And I, it's a great question. I don't yeah. fault the people at all. Totally. That's the question. It's the genesis you know? of the show. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I don't fault people for, for thinking that, you know, I mean, yeah. I went to school for a hundred years to uh, study <laughs> hormones <laughs> and, and, you know, we all still don't completely understand it in my field, but it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, but the problem is the creators of these hormones, the people who are trying to sell you stuff, they want to sell you the fountain of youth. And um, it's just very misleading. You can't recreate uh, you know, your, your 30 year old physiology, um, you're still 50 or 55 or 60 and your body is always going to be 50, 55, 60. Um, but what the hormones do is it can treat certain things and it can help prevent certain things, but it's not going to turn the clock back. Yeah. And, it, and even that is very, very interesting. And I think that, you know, it's important. And I was going to ask like, why some people have such different responses to it, but maybe it's because of these receptors. Maybe they mm -hmm. still have more active. Maybe some people have less, maybe some people have more to start with. Do we even know any of that? You know, I mean, there's so much individuality. Mm -hmm. it, certainly it seems to help some people, but it's not like across the board with any of this, whether we're talking about brain health. I mean, it seems to be like bone health is one of the things that I feel like for people with osteoporosis risk, this, the research looks a little more, the signals are clearer. Yeah. Yeah. But, but some of the other stuff, it's, it's kind of a shrug. It's kind of like, well, yes, maybe, you know, you know, some people seems to help a lot and others in the research is reflective of that. Yeah, absolutely. Genetics is huge, 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 huge. And uh, there are huge variations among individuals on receptors, mitochondria. Um, you know, that's huge too. You wonder why some people, like I, I have a, a friend of mine who, you know, you, you look at her and she just looks like a regular 55 year old woman. She can deadlift something like 400, 500. <laughs> I mean, she's a monster in the gym. And, you know, when you talk to her, it's like, oh yeah, my brother was a power lifter. And, you know, my, my, my other brother was this. I mean, there's clearly genetics there that give this woman ungodly strength for, you know, you just look at it, she looks like a regular person. And it's incredible what this woman can lift in the gym. I, I just, I stand there awestruck um, because I'm the total opposite. Uh, you know, I was built more for speed than for strength. And I just, you know, I just watch in awe of, of people who can do that. So that just speaks to the variation. Um, and that all has to do, a lot of it has to do with genetics. So the, the role that that plays can't be understated. So what, um, what would you think that we do know that menopause therapy works most consistently for? Hot flashes for sure. That's been very, very well studied. Um, absolutely works well for that. Um, I think there really is something to the cardiovascular disease prevention, but I think one thing we learned from the studies that have come before this is the window effect. There is a window of time where estrogen receptor, where estrogen therapy helps. 
And there's a window of time where it actually doesn't help as much. And part of the reason I believe, and now this is my opinion based on science that I've read, is that part of the reason why that window exists is because of the estrogen receptors. Mm. We know that if you do a muscle biopsy on a perimenopausal woman, you're going to find a certain number of estrogen receptors on that muscle cell. When you do a muscle biopsy on a menopausal woman, you're going to see even fewer receptors. So if that's happening with estrogen receptors in the muscle, that's likely happening in other parts of the body as well, which may be why there's more benefit when there's more receptors around. Right. Whereas when there's fewer receptors around, you're going to have less of a benefit and then the risks become more apparent, like blood clots. The blood clot risk of estrogen therapy is much greater over 65 than it is in the perimenopausal woman in her 50s. And I talked on the brain show, you know, early on in this in this podcast, very similar window idea that, that taking it, your brain, like your, your brain weans off of it. And it returns, you know, for most women, not all, returns to that that state. And if you put estrogen in it after it's weaned, it does not, it can be counterproductive, you know? Yeah. 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 That, that window, um, that's also very well defined for the cognitive space as well for, for the neurological, um, is that it can be, you know, in, in, in younger menopausal women, surgically menopausal and naturally menopausal, that hormone therapy, those birth control pills that you give them early in life really do help that cognitive, um, maintenance later on. So Hmm. yeah, the cognitive decline, the cardiovascular, uh, hot flashes, Bones, bones, bones. That is, you know, it. The estrogen is af- actually FDA approved for the prevention yeah. of osteoporosis, not the treatment of osteoporosis, but certainly the prevention. Um, so those are the things we know hormone therapy can absolutely unequivocally help. Um, I'm not so impressed with uh, breast cancer as a risk. When I'm counseling patients on risk of hormone therapy, my big thing I'm focusing on is blood clots. Hmm. That's the stuff that scares the bejesus out of me. Reason being is because as a fertility specialist, I treat younger women with hormones all the time. Every single day I'm prescribing estrogen, progesterone, all kinds of therapy for them. And on these women, I do a very careful workup I, it, it, and look for risk factors. And what, what, what scares the crap out of me is when I get a call from the nursing team, Carla, so-and-so just got taken to the emergency room. She's got bilateral pulmonary embolisms uh, from her estrogen therapy. And then of course I scramble and I say, Oh God, what did I miss? And so I go into her chart. I look for, you know, family history. I look for blood testing, anything that I might've missed. And I can't tell you how many times these young, healthy women with no medical problems show up in the ER with a pulmonary embolism on estrogen therapy that I didn't catch. So when I see that in young, healthy people, in older people with more risk, it's something I really pay attention to. So that's like the major risk that worries me when I, um, when I prescribe hormone therapy for, for anybody, especially older people. Is that still a risk transdermally? Um, there is a risk, but the thought is the risk is less. And, right. and part of the reason is that first pass liver effect. When right. you don't have hormones being metabolized in the liver, you have fewer other things that cause blood clots that can seep into your bloodstream. So the thought is, is that um, transdermal estrogen, vaginal estrogen too, um, has, has a lower risk of blood clots than um, oral. But if I was speaking to one of one of the legends in menopausal medicine, Jan Schifrin, she was uh, she's a friend and one of my mentors at Mass General when I was in fellowship. She's saying she was saying to me, yeah, that is true. However, if you have higher levels of transdermal estrogen, like, you know, not just like menopausal replacement, but say birth control pill level levels, you know, that you would give a younger person that's going to make it to the liver. The higher the level going through the skin, some of it's going to get to the liver. So you do still have those risk of blood clots. But the lower doses that we use with hormone therapy, much less able to go to the liver and cause the blood clots. So it's a dose response relationship. But short answer is yes, it is better uh, than the oral. So it's funny listening to you. So I sit and go, okay, um, in that window, 
why wouldn't everybody want to take hormone therapy? I'm I'm not on any systemic, you know, but, but like, why mm-hmm. wouldn't, because I feel good. I feel okay. But like all that, there's always, and I hear it from the audience that nagging, like, but could I feel better? And I want to talk about performance and body composition because, you know, that you, we go into there, but just, just talking from like being the healthiest me, like, is it something that you think every woman should pursue? I think one size does not fit all. There are so many factors that, that go into that decision. Um, I have lots of people who really don't like taking medication and they want to do, and this is true for fertility too. Um, you know, some people really are scared of it for whatever reason, whether it be rational or irrational, or just philosophically feel like, you know what, you know, if I don't need to take something, I just don't want to take it. I have other people who are like, give me everything imaginable that might help me. And so there's a whole spectrum. Of, of what, what people want to do just philosophically. And then layered on that is, well, what are they, what problem are they trying to solve and what are their personal risk factors? So if I have someone that wants to take everything known to man to make her feel better, and she is, you know, having hot flashes, but she also had a pulmonary embolism on birth control pills earlier in her life. Well, now we have to weigh, okay, if I give you estrogen again, you're probably going to have another pulmonary embolism. A third of the time, those are fatal. Not sure that that's worth uh, getting rid of your hot flashes. I know your hot flashes are debilitating, but let's find another way. Um, For people who are at really low risk, if you want to take hormone therapy for your hot flashes, absolutely. We know it works. The benefits outweigh the risk. If someone comes to me and says, well, I want to take estrogen therapy because I think it's going to improve my body composition. Well, a lot of the data that's out there is actually leaning toward the opposite, that it's actually making things a little worse um, in terms of body composition. And so if if someone wants to take someone for a particular thing and it's not effective, they have a history of a dementia in their family. What if it's like that kind of thing? If that it's, if it's that kind of thing, I would say, you know what, what are your risks of doing this? Okay. No history of blood clots. You're active. You have no medical problems. Your cholesterol is great. Um, I would say, sure. Why not? You know, we know that. And and if she's in the right window, if she's over 65, totally, totally. yeah. Yeah. Because now you run the risk of throwing little blood clots and and having um, ischemic dementia, which is even worse. So if she's in the right window, I I would have no problem with that because there are some indications that it does help and uh, it may not be as harmful within 10 years of going into menopause. So it's a complicated equation when you're weighing risks and benefits. Um, And ultimately, it comes up to the what's the patient's comfort zone? It's like, okay, it may or may not work for this. We don't know, but I'm real low risk. I'm kind of scared of this. So yeah, I'm going to take it, you know, and that's okay. That is absolutely fine. As long as people go into it with their eyes wide open and know what their personal risks are and know what the likelihood of it helping is, I think it's absolutely fine to make that informed, educated decision. And I'd be comfortable prescribing it. Right. So let's talk about that body composition and performance piece, because I think if I want to put a bow on what we just said, like if you do have these, I mean, some of this is measurable, how much is helping and some isn't right. Like if you do have a risk factor, if you've a risk factor for dementia, it's heavy in your family and you want to try it, you might not be able to track if this is keeping you from right developing that. But if you are using it because your bones, that is very trackable. And mm-hmm. if you're using it for cardiovascular health, are there, I mean, would you be able to see lipid changes and all of that with it? Like, could you track if it's work, quote unquote, working? That's a great question. I mean, you can track lipid parameters for sure. Right. Um, but, you know, if, as you and I have talked about offline, you know, cholesterol is becoming less and less of a predictor of cardiovascular disease. So totally. that's that been really happening for us? about 10 years. I just think the statin company has been fighting it, but that's just yeah, my yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you watch yeah. the literature. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, you won't get me near a statin. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, yeah. But my mother had an autoimmune reaction to a statin. So that's part of my reasoning. Totally. Anyway. Yeah. I digress. But um, there's some trackable things like I think blood pressure is a very important component of cardiovascular health, and that's mm-hmm. easily trackable. Yep. Um, I mean, you can track cholesterol. If you see major changes, 
Endolipids, that might be something you want to keep an eye on because even though absolute levels of LDL or whatever might not be very predictive, but if I see a change that's dramatic in an unfavorable direction, that might tell me this might not be the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Even though there's no study to define that, it's just common sense. If you see a rapid dramatic change in the wrong direction, that might not be a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> for right, the cardiovascular right. system. But, you know, I think, I think blood pressure is, is a good, is a good measure of what's going on there. Yeah. Um, what about insulin resistance? Insulin resistance. Oh yeah. The diabetes picture. Yes, absolutely. That's a whole other metabolic pathway that the Does end hormone therapy result, help with that? With insulin resistance. I think it makes it worse actually. Yeah. That's what I'm. Yeah. I was wondering if I just opened too- a can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was reading some really interesting stuff today um, on estrogen receptors in insulin resistance, which actually made Stacy Sims Menopause for Athletes course make so much sense on a very granular scientific level. It like put the light bulb in my head. It's like, oh, okay. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's the science that connects everything clinically. So going to try to explain this in English. I'll help it's you. Not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. So the way they've learned about how estrogen receptors work is they use animal models that they can genetically engineer to be absent of a particular thing. In this case, the estrogen alpha receptor. So they made these knockout mice. They're called knockouts because they use gene they knock out the gene. So what happens when you take away estrogen receptor alpha? So what they find is when this estrogen receptor is lacking, these mice get obese, they become insulin resistant, they, their muscular function isn't, um, isn't optimal because of the mitochondria or the car batteries and the cells are just not working properly. And so that basically told scientists that the estrogen receptor alpha is really important for these things. And then what they do is they say, okay, well, I'm going to treat them with with estrogen. What happens when you give them hormone to try to fix the problem? Doesn't really fix the problem. It may help the problem a little bit, And again, in these animal models, they saw the windows. They saw the same thing. When you have, you know, like newly menopausal mice, uh, they respond better to estrogen therapy than the ones that are farther away. Um, And so that's where they came up with the, um, the notion that it's not just the hormone. The receptor is of paramount importance to how hormones work. And so when I was reading about this, the GLUT4 pathway came up. And Stacy talks about GLUT4 a lot in her Menopause for Athletes course when she talks about insulin resistance. And what GLUT4 is, it's a glucose transporter. It helps move sugar into muscles to utilize for fuel. And so what they found was that GLUT4 was less impacted by the estrogen receptor alpha and by the hormones. So what GLUT4 kind of is, is a backdoor to help with that insulin resistance problem. And so this is where lifting heavy shit really comes into play because the muscles are still working, the muscles are still moving, and that is facilitating managing your sugar through the GLUT4 pathway when maybe your estrogen receptor alpha is declining and your estrogen levels are declining. So how do we get the muscle to use sugar and how do we help with that insulin resistance? We use the back door and that's the GLUT4 pathway. And so, you know, ding, 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 light bulbs go off is, oh, okay, this is why she talks about this. And this is why she talks about, you know, muscular exercise as being a great way to lower your insulin. So I think the moral of the story is even though our estrogen levels are declining because our ovarian function is declining, even though our estrogen receptors are also declining, there is enough redundancy in the human body in these pathways where we can target other pathways to get the job done when the hormone piece is lacking. Right. Which is what she is all about. Like just working with the changing physiology and finding other ways to sort of pick up that slack. I mean, that's the, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the big light bulb that when I, it was just this morning when I was taking a deep dive into the molecular biology of all of this is that, ah, this is why she says what she says is because we're using the back door. Right. Um, so, you know, the solution isn't throwing every hormone at the sun at this because, you know, that's just fuel. You're just screaming at the top of your lungs and no one's hearing you. It's you got to utilize the other pathways. You got to utilize the other ways that the body responds. And this is why the studies support, and it's, it's, it's hard, but the single best way to modify body composition is through dietary and exercise modification, because those things are utilizing those backdoor pathways that are not necessarily hormone dependent. It's all we've got, you know, when our hormones are declining, we can't get that back. But there are other redundancies in the system that will allow us to thrive, that will allow us to build muscle and still function uh, very, very well into our old, old age. Yeah. And that, you know, that I have two questions. The first is the, that, that performance and body composition piece, because, um, you know, there is this question as to whether or not it will help you maintain weight or prevent the weight that comes on. And I'm hearing you say that no, because of all these receptor issues. Yeah, it's, it's my opinion, reading the science and also reading a lot that's coming out in the clinical literature, the studies about, you know, there was one out there recently about hormone therapy in women who were doing a resistance training program. They actually found that, um, that the, the fat deposition is actually increased in women taking hormone therapy. Their muscle mass might increase, um, but their fat deposition is, uh, is, is increasing. There were trends toward it increasing rather than decreasing. So, you know, when you've got too much hormone, when you're, you know, again, screaming at the top of your lungs, trying to get the receptors to listen, the side effects are that you might actually be making the situation worse. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And I also feel, you know, there are certainly women who do, again, very well, and you've talked about symptoms. And if they're, if they have hot flash relief, and they're sleeping better, then they can perform better. And they are using all those other pathways better, right? Like there's absolutely, I, I think that gets missed sometimes, too, is that if, if you are using hormone therapy, and it's making a lot of these other things better for you, then you're going to have a knockoff benefit of being able to perform better and having the benefits of being able to perform better at right and recover better. Like, yes, absolutely. Without a doubt. And that's one of the big confounders of a lot of these studies. Confounders are things that are unintended consequences in studies where, you know, you get someone feeling better, you get someone with a good night's sleep, they can go out and run a marathon the next day. Whereas if they, you know, were up with hot flashes all night, forget it, you know, that 5k is just looking like a mountain. So, so yeah. And I mean, I think the point is, is that we need to have honest conversations about what hormones do and what they don't do. They absolutely can change your life with respect to helping you feel better with your hot flashes, helping to stabilize the moods, the anxiety, all of the stuff that goes on in the brain. Absolutely. But there are some things it's not going to do. It's not going to bring you back to the same body composition and metabolism that you used to have. Um, but it will make you feel better, like you said, so that you can go out and utilize those other pathways um, to help with your body composition. And I think this is why we're seeing in the studies that, you know, it's really the diet and exercise that's changing the body composition. It's not the hormones and the hormones can actually make things worse with respect to body composition, but it can improve other things. Yeah, absolutely. So as you were talking about the hormones and the receptors and the windows, the question that came to my mind is if I start taking hormone therapy within that window, will I keep all my receptors or will they go anyway? That is an awesome question. That is a great question. Typically what happens in biology is when the signal goes away, the antenna come down. It's like, well, what do I need all these antenna for? There's not much signaling there. So, you know, I'm going to pack it in. What is true is that when you provide the stimulus or the hormone signal, you are going to maintain your antenna better, but you're not going to bring it back to those premenopausal levels because just the, the process of aging 
and other pathways that are involved in the expression of the receptors on a cell, there's other things that are playing a role as well. So if you're on estrogen therapy, your receptor, you're probably going to keep those receptors more so than someone who is not, but it's not going to completely restore the same number of receptors you would have had when you were in your 20s or 30s. But it could help you to maintain them a little longer. But what we find is once those windows uh, are approached, like at 65, at, at some point, the, 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 the radio tower says, you know what, we're done. You know, I don't care how much signal is out there. Yeah, we're retiring. We're done. We've been listening to Signal for you know <laughs> 55 years. We're done with this. And um, at some point, you know, even though you're taking estrogen, those receptors aren't going to be maintained. And I also then wonder, is it all about, you know, we just talk about these hormones, like all we need is estrogen and progesterone and maybe testosterone. Like, is it all just about them? I mean, is is, is are they the main players here? Or is there something else at work that is part of that hormonal milieu. Does that make sense? No, it, it does. It does. And if you, uh, if you Google androgen pathway, you will see just how complicated these pathways are and how many players there really are. And you can't even test for half of these players because they're so transient in the cell and in the circulation. They're not stable. You can't measure them in any real capacity. So yes, there's lots of other players and lots of, of pathways and so many layers to the hormonal milieu that it you know, although estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are big players, those are the ones we can measure. That's why we know about them. But there's a lot of unmeasurable players that are also very important in the game that are playing a role as well. So those three are the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole, whole iceberg underneath the ocean of stuff that's important. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's important to consider too, because we, you know, it's usually what uh, E2, right? It, like what is the estrogen that there's estradiol, estradiol, there's estrone, yeah. there's, there's E2, there's, I think there's an E3. Um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of estrogen metabolites that have action in cells. Um, and also testosterone and estrogen sometimes go back and forth. So you've got aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen. Right, right, um, which is a bodybuilder you know, problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, you've also got interplay between different pathways. You know, you've got testosterone turning into estrogen, you got, you know, estrogen turning into estrone, and you got DHEA that's feeding in because DHEA can lead to estrogen or, or, or testosterone. And so it just goes on and on and on from there. There's just layers and layers of complexity. But we focus on estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in DHEA because we can measure them. That makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. I feel like we covered an awful lot there. Is there anything that you thought about this topic that we haven't covered or that you wanted to make clear to this audience about this? I mean, I, I feel like this is, I feel clear. I thought I was clear from our previous conversations and I feel clearer as to why this is so messy and why, um, why it can be oversimplified so much. Like it's, I feel like a lot of it's getting oversimplified and oversold. And I'm, I want to just be clear. I am not anti hormones at all. I am anti predatory behavior and I'm anti, you know, telling women that this is the way to get their figures back, which is what I'm almost hearing. And that, that triggers, that makes me go off. Like I'm, whenever I pounce, it's because someone's telling you that taking this hormone and you won't gain weight and you'll be you know, feminine forever. I really don't. I have a very visceral reaction to that. So I'm sorry if I jump on people. I never mean to, but I just really don't like that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That is that is predatory behavior by definition is you're seizing on one of the big things that we're all so sensitive, sensitive to is that, you know, our bodies do change. And it can cause real problems in our relationships and our body image, especially if we've struggled with body image issues, yeah. you know, growing up, you know, that just gets amplified at this time of our lives. And, you know, people, you know, these, these businesses know that and they seize upon it. I mean, what, you know, who wouldn't take something that was going to restore their, uh, their feminine figure that they had. Um, but it's just not the case. It just doesn't do that. Um, so I think, you know, 
to just summarize, you know, we unpacked a lot in this. Um, I do actually summarize. have one more question. Oh, okay. Go for it. I just thought of it. No, it, I asked you to wrap up and then I'm like, wait, I'm not done. Um, All right. I, I, I did want to address really um, briefly the idea of balancing hormones because that comes up all the time too. And you, you've, you've answered this in a roundabout way, but like, why is, why are people selling this notion of you should balance out your hormones? And what does that even mean? You know, I sometimes think that when people talk about balancing hormones, they are, they're trying to talk about the effects of the hormones rather than the hormones themselves. And, and maybe this is just a nuance that I pick up on because I'm an endocrinologist. I've spent my entire career studying hormones and receptors. So I'm, you know, it's something, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when I hear this, it's like, well, no, you're not balancing the hormones. You, you know, what you're doing is you're balancing the effects of the hormones. So for instance, let's talk about uh, lifting heavy shit and, and plyometrics, right? Those things are going to cause when you're working out and you're doing a heavy lift or you're doing box jumps, or whatever you're doing, you're going to elicit a hormonal response that is immediate, that is going to help you execute that task. Your adrenals are going to fire up, your testosterone may fire up to try to get you through that workout. But what happens, so you do have hormone change in response to those exercises, but what happens is after 30 minutes, your hormones are going to return to baseline because the task is done, right? So, you know, you're not really changing the baseline, but what you are changing is that those plyometrics are helping your bone density. And what happens as the hormones decline in menopause, our bone density declines. So what you're doing is by giving your bones a stimulus with that workout you just did, you are counteracting the effect of those mm. declining hormones, mm -hmm. not the mm -hmm. hormone themselves. You're not bringing your estrogen back to baseline levels by doing box jumps and, and back squats. Gotcha. What you're doing is you're helping the mitigate the effect of that declining estrogen, which is Gotcha. declining bone mass or muscle mass or whatever. So that's the nuance there. And like I said, maybe I'm the only one that really thinks it's important because I just, I study hormones. That's all I do. Um, but it is, it is a marketing ploy that again, has that undertone of fountain of youth. We're going to restore what you had before. And, and that's just, again, it's predatory, but it may come from a lack of understanding rather than predatory behavior. I try to be optimistic and give people the benefit of the doubt, but I generally do too. When people are selling something hard, I get a little, um, my hackles go up a little bit and I wonder, but yeah, no, I, I agree that I think that some, that, that a great deal of this does come from a genuine place in a lot of, a lot of ways. And I think that, um, you know, I just, I think we need to be mindful of now that everybody is talking about menopause and talking about hormones and a hundred percent, a woman should not need to like to fight tooth and nail to like try to get hormone therapy to feel better. And all of that, a hundred percent agree. I just also don't want us to swing so far that we become, you know, this idea that, well, if you're not, you're deficient. If you're not something, if you're not taking them, then you're not, you know, you're not whole. Like that bothers me too. <laughs> so I just want to, absolutely, like, you know, just, just hang out here in this nice middle ground and have intelligent conversations and make decisions based on your personal needs. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I said it, I said it to Sarah on her podcast, her awesome new podcast, that we're not broken. We're not broken. We're not deficient. We are in a different stage of our lives, just like at puberty. You know, we go through puberty. We're not broken during puberty. We might feel like we're broken when we wake up with, with, with boobs one day and the day before we didn't have them. You know, um, when we go through pregnancy, my God, look what happens when we go through pregnancy. Talk about a big overhaul of the body. Um, you don't know what's coming when you're pregnant. I mean, I remember when I was pregnant with my son. I mean, I'm an endocrinologist. I do this. I know this stuff for a living. I was so scared. This scared the crap out of me. It's like, oh, my God, what happens next? So, you know, as women, we go through these hormonal changes. We're like hormonal chameleons. And this is just another phase. You know, we weren't broken in puberty. We weren't broken in pregnancy. We're sure as hell not broken now. This is just the next chapter. And there are ways around it, you know? So, 
you know, like, like, like Stacy has mentioned in her courses, we just need to find an alternate pathway, you know, the other pathways. Okay. You know, we know that we're not going to have our fastest run times now, but there's certainly other ways we can be a kick-ass athlete might not be with running, but maybe it's with, with other stuff that we couldn't do when we were younger. So it's, it's just like that. We just have to find the alternate pathways to be our healthiest self. Excellent. I, was there any other thoughts on, on hormone therapy? I mean, I think I, I, my hope is, is that women can take all this information and take it to a doctor that has ears and receptors, <laughs> you know, talking about, <laughs> you know, and yeah, be receptive absolutely. For, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I think the, the take home message with all that we unpack today is that the number one thing is that there is another part of the equation that nobody talks about, and that's the receptor, the responsiveness of the tissue to the hormone. You can pour hormones into it, but if the receptors or if the tissue is not responding to it, there's not much you can do. And there is really no treatment for that receptor or that tissue responsiveness. There's no therapy for that, unfortunately. We can help treat symptoms because there are receptors there. So we have to know what hormone therapy can do and what it can't do. And the reason it doesn't bring you back to your premenopausal state is because the response of the tissue is going to be different in this age as compared to uh, before. And that we can't change. So that's the take home message with response to, uh, to, to, to hormones. And, uh, and like I said, we just have to know what can they do and what can they not do? And we have to keep others honest about how they market these things to other people. hundred percent. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Carrie Ann Madden, who is a trainer, nutrition coach, and alumni of Dr. Stacey Sims' Menopause for Athletes course. We talk all about how to put the information that Dr. Sims provides to use in your own and your clients' training. So come on back for that one. And as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. <laughs>